0: So let me uh, do the first one here. If, if, limit, if limited atonement, unfortunate as that term is, is true, does that make phrases like Jesus died for your sins, excuse me, and Jesus died in your place in evangelism wrong? Does that give a false foundation of faith? Some reform people are much more vigilant over this language than I tend to be. I'm always asking, what do you mean by it? So that I haven't been picky in your language or my language, though I'm more picky about mine now than I used to be, I suppose, if I heard you say that to somebody, I wouldn't I wouldn't say, no, never say that. I would ask you, what, what did you mean when you said that to that person? And if you said, I just meant that if they believe him, his death counts for them. I'd say, okay, that's that's true. But here's what I would encourage you to think through your language. Here's what you, in evangelism, what do we offer to people? And I think a good way to think is we offer them. Christ and all that Christ did, like a gift. If they reject the gift, they don't have all that he accomplished and all that he did and is. But you give him as a totality, I'm offering you Christ. He's willing to be yours, embrace him, receive him, trust him, treasure him, all of him and all that he did. And I think we have a better gift to offer if we say he effectively canceled the sins of his people, removed the wrath of God from the sins of his people, provide righteousness for his imperfect people, secure eternal life for his people. And if you would have him, then that and he is yours. Rather than saying to them, you, In your sin and rebellion right there are one for whom all that happened. They don't know that. So when you say he died for you, you have to sort of conceal that aspect because that's not really what you're saying is true about them, and will you ever get to it? And what's happened in American evangelism is, no, we never get to it because people don't believe it now. We've, we've formed a kind of evangelism that only deals with the Arminian truth and leaves out the Calvinist truth, and I want both truths to be there. So I'm going I'm to offer somebody Christ. See, do, do you know Christ? You, whatever your lead line is on, on the street, do you know Jesus Christ? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Do you know that if you trust Jesus Christ, all that he did for his people will be yours? What did he do for his people? He canceled their sins. He removed God's wrath against them. He provided for them eternal life. He gave them perfection in the presence of God. That's what he did for his people. And he goes through the world offering himself to all people to have. And if you are In him, by receiving him, that's all yours. You don't say they have it before they have it. So that's, just find your way. Find your way of applying that truth to people. Now the question that was asked last night is this one. If Christ's death propitiates the sins of the elect, so 30 A.D., sins propitiated, then how can it be that the elect are under God's wrath before they believe, which they are, according to Ephesians 2, 3? We are children of wrath until we're saved. So it's a good question. And now we can put up my screen and I'll read you my answer that I wrote last night. As uh, small as that print is, sorry. Sorry. How can the wrath of God against the elect be propitiated when Christ died, and yet they still be the children of wrath until they are converted? Answer, we must distinguish between the penal sentence and the actual execution of that sentence. For the elect to be born children of wrath does not mean that the elect are enduring the actual wrath of God it means they deserve it. Yes, we do, and that the sentence of God's wrath still hung over them until the point when we trust Christ. We were heading to hell, where God's wrath would be executed on us. But it's not executed yet. But that raises a second question: Why does this sentence of God's wrath still hang? over the elect in their pre-converted state if Christ has already propitiated God's wrath. There is a time gap between the judicial act that deals with God's wrath, namely the cross, and the actual application of that accomplishment to the elect, namely at conversion. God's wrath was propitiated legally when Christ died, but its application is delayed till conversion. Which raises another question. Why? Since the propitiation was accomplished by Christ and is found only in Christ, God considered it fitting to delay the application of the propitiation, the actual removal of the sentence of wrath, I think I meant to say until, right here, until we are actually united to Christ by faith. So since the removal legally of the sentence is accomplished by Christ and is only found in Christ, it is fitting that when we are united to Christ, that sentence be lifted so that it become clear that it was lifted in Christ and by Christ. In that way, it becomes plain that the removal of the sentence of wrath was wholly owing to the work of Christ, Christ is more fully glorified. And I put at the bottom there, see my article. My Glory I Will Not Give to Another, from which I just took those quotes just about, verbatim. But you can't get at this article for another year because it's in a collection that will be published next year on the limited atonement. So watch for the book, From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, editors Jonathan and David Gibson. Okay, that's a very complicated question. I'll just throw my my answer out there. Let's see. I've got a. Go back over. Mm. There we go. Perseverance. Let's get started on this, and I'll try to make time for questions. By the way, here's what I plan to do. We'll we'll wrap this up at 4.30. So that's an hour and ten minutes from now. And then I'm willing to hang out here, and I'll probably just sit on those steps there to ease my back and, uh, and, and chat for another half hour or so before I head home for, for the evening. So if you feel like go oh, shoot and get a chance to ask him something or whatever, then I'll try to hang for a little while. So let's see what we can do in an hour and 10 minutes. Um, I know we can get through perseverance, and I'd like to get through those 10 benefits of believing these things and I've got 200 questions here <laughs> so let let's do the slides and if, if I get done before 430 we'll, we'll turn to questions the Bethlehem elder affirmation of faith I, I just I can't tell you I love ending here I love the doctrine of perseverance of the saints um, the older I get the, the more I love it right In a sense, you should love it a lot when you're young because it's the reason you can believe you'll be a Christian in 60 years. But once you've lived those 60 years, you look back and you say, he's amazing. He's amazing. He kept me. Now unto him who is able to keep me from falling and to present me before the throne of his glory. That that text becomes unbelievably precious with every passing day of life. Because remember the question I asked you at the beginning, how did you get saved? I hope I hope you got some answers to that. Here's another one. I can't remember whether I asked it. Why do you think that you will be a believer tomorrow? Why do you think that you will wake up tomorrow morning believing in Jesus? How are you going to answer that question? If you say, well, I've got a free will, and I'm going to use it that way, you're in trouble, man. (laughs) You are in big trouble. If you think your next 60 years is going to be survived that way, I don't have a lot of hope for you. Your free will is fickle. There is an answer to why we believe we will wake up believing tomorrow morning, and that's what we're going to talk about for the next hour or 30, 40 minutes. We believe that the sanctification which comes by the Spirit through faith is imperfect and incomplete in this life. Although slavery to sin is broken and sinful desires are progressively weakened by the power of a superior satisfaction in the glory of Christ yet there remain remnants of corruption in every heart that give rise to irreconcilable war and call for vigilance in the lifelong fight of faith we believe that all who are justified will will win this fight period all who are justified will be glorified. Those of me predestined, he called. Those of me called, he justified. Those of me justified, he glorified. That's my main text on perseverance. If you're justified, you will be glorified. Nobody falls out. Nobody falls away. Nobody fails to get there. You're going to win. It's a battle all the way. What did Paul say at the very end of his life? I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Fought to the end. Fight to the end. You think, Paul had to fight to believe? You bet he believed he had to fight to believe. It's a fight to the end. You've got friends, I've got friends right now who are on their deathbed. It's a fight to the end. Because however the devil gets at you in China or America at the same time, he does. And what his word is, is you didn't live a good enough life. You're going to die really bad. And when you go on the other side, you're going to get surprised by the anger of God. Yes, you are. (laughs) Boy, that will come at you big time. you will fight or you will lose. I'm trying to help you fight. They will persevere in faith and never surrender to the enemy of their souls. This perseverance is the promise of the new covenant obtained by the blood of Christ. So this perseverance is the promise of the new covenant. It was obtained, I think, for God's elect in a unique way by the blood of Christ. It wasn't attained for everybody. Which is why in the question earlier somebody asked why does he let some people go so far? Remember the parable of the soils? The the word comes, they spring up with joy, and then comes the persecution, they wither away, they fall away. What's that? They come up and some of them get choked, they fall away. They didn't persevere because this wasn't bought for them. This is bought for the elect. This is bought for you. Obtained by the blood and worked in us by God himself, yet not so as to diminish, but to empower and encourage our vigilance so that we may say in the end, I have fought the good fight, but it is not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Woe to you if you construe anything I say in the next hour to imply that you are Secure in such a way that no vigilance is needed. Did you hear that sentence? Woe to you if you construe anything I say in the next hour to imply that you are secure in such a way as to exclude the need for vigilance and war. You are secure, justified saint but not secure in such a way as to exclude war. You're just guaranteed to win. So fight on. I'm going to skip the Westminster statements of this. Same thing. I've got six points now. I think it's six. Six groups of texts to show this. We must persevere. This is the mandate, and then we'll have the promise that we will We must persevere in faith. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast, the word which I preached to you. If you don't hold fast the word of God, you won't be saved. And if you hear me saying you can lose your salvation, you're hearing what I didn't say. If you don't believe to the end but throw away the faith, Paul says, you won't be saved. We'll come back to that. Colossians, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through through his death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I Paul became a minister. So if you indeed continue in the faith firmly established, you'll make it. 2 Timothy 2 It's a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If We endure, we will reign with Him. All of these texts are saying you must continue. You must persevere in faith in order to be saved. Mark 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews, now, second point, the obedience or holiness that comes from this faith. So the first group of texts were to say you must persevere in faith to be saved, and now we're saying the obedience or the holiness, the change that comes into your life is necessary for final salvation. Pursue peace, Hebrews 12, 14, with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So there is a sanctification without which you won't see him. Holiness is necessary. And the holiness is the fruit of the faith. So your salvation is not by works. It's by faith. And the evidence of your faith is that you are being sanctified. Romans 8:13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So if you're killing sin, fighting sin, you will live. Galatians 5.19, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenings, carousings, and things like these of which I warn you just as I have warned you before. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom." Isn't that amazing? I warn you. Who's you? The Galatian church. I warn you. If you practice such things, you won't go to heaven. That's the sermon I preached in Omaha, Nebraska. Remember I said last night, when the man came up to me and said, you know, you're going to have to watch out for your Arminianism here in this conference. (laughs) I said, excuse me? I'm a seven-point Calvinist. Because a lot of people think Calvinists can't talk like this because it sounds like you can lose your salvation or like you're not secure. Just don't go there. Just don't go there. That's not what this is saying. What is it saying? Well, well, we'll see what it's saying, but just take it for what it is. Don't make it mean more than it says. It says, those who act that way won't enter the kingdom of heaven, and he's telling the church that. So we should preach that way as pastors. Same thing in First Corinthians 16, almost the same words. Ephesians 3, 5, Immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man or idolater has inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. He's warning the church about these behaviors that keep you out of the kingdom and on and on. I don't need to read all of these, I don't think. They're all saying the same thing. If you continue in my word, then you are truly mine. Continue in my word. Now, here's the good news. Those are all warnings that we must continue in faith and continue in holiness and fight the fight uh, against sin. The justified will be kept by God for final salvation. Yes, they will. I guess you're tired of looking at this passage. Is it any wonder that I'm, in, I'm requiring of my preaching guys to have to memorize Romans 8 this semester, all of it, and recite it out loud to all of us in the class, every one of them? <laughs> There's a simple reason for that. It's the greatest chapter in the Bible. And I know I said Romans 3, 20 to 26 was the greatest paragraph in the Bible. No contradiction. <laughs> Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Right? If I had to go to Desert Island with one chapter, I wouldn't take it because I know it by heart already. <laughs> I'd take another one. <laughs> I'd take Romans 3. <laughs> Because I don't have that one memorized. So tired or not, here we are again. One more time, I think. Maybe there's another one. Um, But you just got to feel the wonder of perseverance here. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And there is no one missing between justification and glorification. Let that sink in. If your heart bears witness to you right now, along with the Holy Spirit, that you are a justified child of God, the word that should be resounding gloriously in your mind is, those whom he justified are as good as glorified. You will not be lost. Sweet. Or my wife's favorite grandmother's favorite text. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. What's the point of a text like that, except you're safe? You are safe. The hand of God Almighty and the hand of the Son, I and the Father are one, wonk. There you are. In the son's hand and the father's hand, as one hand, safe. That's really good news. When my mother died, killed in a bus accident in Israel in December 16, 1974, it took us 10 days to get her home, my sister fainted, when she saw her. They did such a lousy job on her body. And my father and I, he was injured. He was on the plane that brought her home. I nursed him for a month to try to heal his back from the injury. We had the funeral the day after Christmas. It's totally unplanned, right? She's 56 years old. And driving to the cemetery to pick a plot, I'm driving. My dad is very wounded, sitting in the car here beside me. I said, Daddy... What should we put on the gravestone? He said, I haven't thought about it. Married for 36 years. Married a second time then for 25 years. My father had two good marriages, two good holy marriages. I said, how about 1 Peter 1, 5? Kept by the power of God. So that's, this text means a lot to me. Blessed be the God and Father <coughs> of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected. Now, in the, in the old King James, it's who are kept by the power of God, protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. So, there's a double beauty in this text. We are going to get an inheritance. Are you sure we're going to get an inheritance eternal in the heavens? Yes. Two reasons. One, it is reserved, I don't like that translation, kept, guarded, it's reserved so the the inheritance is being guarded and kept and reserved for you, just waiting for you, and you are being kept. So That's you being kept, and that's the inheritance being kept. So here, sovereign God is at work guarding you through faith. He's not going to let you fall. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling away. He's holding on to you. And there, there's an inheritance. And he's keeping it, working on it, perfecting it. Perfect for you. And one day, closure. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop it. So my mother was kept by the power of God for 56 years. And then he took her just when he chose Not when I would have chosen. Be sober in spirit, (coughs) or be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Resist, fight, knowing that the same experience of suffering, so suffering is the issue here. Being accomplished by your brothers throughout the whole world. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you, called you to his own glory, will, will infallibly perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's gonna happen. So walk into the suffering with all the brothers around the world. Embrace the suffering that he ordains for your life, because know that after you've suffered a little while, perfect. Confirm, strengthen establish he 's got it planned he 's going to do it for you. I mean, how many times do you have a battle in your life? battle with discouragement, depression, anger somebody 's opposed to you, something t- happens it just knocks you off balance, and in that moment, you feel like God, this could this could really go bad i could I could lose my ability to believe I, I could become so weak and so disoriented that I don't even know if I'd be a believer anymore. I feel so at a loss. Now, at that moment, what's going to be your hope that you're going to make it for 30 more years? I promise you, it is not your free will, (laughs) it's just ludicrous to even think that your will could be relied upon to get you through. One thing, promises, like this. The promises of God. He promised to keep me. He promised not to drop me, not to let me go. He promised to bring me through. He promised to perfect me and confirm me and strengthen me and establish me. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to, to make you stand before the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior. I preached a sermon at together for the gospel last year on this text. And I chose it because coming to the end of 32 plus years of ministry, I felt how sweetly true it's been. It's been. And the point I made was, isn't it remarkable that Jude would call such great things to bear witness to the keeping power of God. So the main point of this text is he's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you or make you stand. And to say that, he says, now unto the only God, our Savior, Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. That's a big, big doxology, all of it, to celebrate the fact that he keeps his own. It's a big deal to be kept by God. It's worthy of words like that. So if you're 19 or 79 here, you should celebrate the promise and power of God. He keeps, he keeps, he holds me. Same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5. Our Lord Jesus will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Christ. In other words, He won't let you fall out of trusting Christ who is your perfection and blamelessness. God is faithful. Oh, yes, He is. Through whom you were called. This is how the logic is working into the fellowship of His Son. And those whom He called, He keeps. And those whom He keeps, He glorifies. You could have said it that way in Romans 8. Same thing in Ephesians 1.13, where we were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, The reason you have the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is a seal, which means he has been given you as a kind of down payment and security so that he ever is at work producing what is needed for your endurance. This is perhaps the most clear and glorious statement of all with regard to perseverance. This is the new covenant right here. I will make an everlasting covenant. This is our blood bought. This is the blood of the covenant. So when Jesus died, he bought this for us. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not, number one. I will not turn away from them to do them good. Two, I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Three, so they will not turn away from me. Limited atonement is simply a way of saying Christ died to keep you saved. Your Keeping yourself saved doesn't make the blood effective. The blood is effective in keeping you saved. It's the blood of the covenant. He bought your keeping. That's good news and strong meat of assurance. I'm confident, Philippians 1.6, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it to the day of Christ. Simon, Simon, behold, Peter, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, again, strengthen your brothers. This is one of the reasons I believe in Jesus. I love this kind of sovereign talk. This is absolutely sovereign talk. You see it? Peter, Satan... Like Job, like with Job, has come to the Father and asked if he could sift you tonight. How are things sifted? So you have a a square here with a mesh wire, right? And you put the the dirt or the grain or whatever you're sifting in there. Shake it, and then some stuff comes through and some stuff doesn't. You're trying to separate something. Well, what is Satan trying to separate from Peter. He's going to push Peter through the grid. What does he want to come out the bottom, and what does he want to stay on top? He wants Peter at the bottom and his faith on top, all right? That's what Satan is doing in your life regularly. He wants faith to be sifted out of your life, and he's going to do it by making him scared stiff to tell the truth about Jesus three times. Now Jesus knows this is coming, and he says to Peter, I have prayed for you and that's what he's doing for you right now in heaven. Says so in Romans 8. He is at the Father's right hand interceding for us Romans 8 34. What did he pray for Peter? Because he says when you have turned again like oops You're going to have to fail and turn. Three times you're going to deny me. He didn't say that here. He does later. When you've turned, I'm going to make you a rock. Strengthen your brothers. Jesus did not pray, evidently, that he would not deny him. Because I think the Father always answers Jesus' prayers. He never says, well, Jesus, you get 70% of your prayers answered. If Jesus asks for something, he gets it. When he asked, what he asked for was, keep him, Father. Don't let him fall headlong. The Lord establishes the steps of the righteous. When he likes in his way, he will not, when he falls, he will not be cast headlong. That's our fighter verse for this week. And then he returned. He didn't say, if you return, see that right there? He didn't say, if you return, I'll try to make something of you. He said sovereignly, you will return, and here's what I want to do, when you return. That's what I mean by calling it sovereign language. (laughs) It would be like somebody coming up to me and saying, I prayed for you. I know you're going to blow it this weekend. And when you're done blowing it, here's what I'm going to do with it. Who do you think you are? God? Yes. (laughs) Yes, that's who he thinks he is when he talks like this. So, you will fail. There's not a person in this room who will make it a week without some notable sin. That is discernible sin. How should you feel about that? Is that a, a way a failure to make it to the end? It wasn't for Peter. So one of the things your Lord Jesus is praying for you in heaven right now is that every one of those stumblings, like Peter's stumblings, would somehow circle around through repentance and confession and bring you out stronger. Strengthen your brothers when you have turned. That's the way he keeps us. Falling away from faith and holiness shows that we never truly belonged to Christ. Now we're back to those texts that sounded so threatening at the beginning. Those who do such things will not enter into the kingdom of heaven, and he's saying that on a to a church. And some of the people in that church walked away. Having been in the church for many years, maybe even deacons in the church, they walked away from the faith, threw it all away. And here is what John says about them. They went out from us, but they were not really of us For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown they're not of us. That is a Calvinist talking. Right? An Arminian would say, They really were of us, but they went out because you can lose your salvation. And Paul won't even come close to saying that ever. Or John. He said, if they've really gone out from us, they were never in. That's what he says. No one who abides in him sins, goes on sinning. No one who goes on sinning has seen or known him, has seen. It's not like you can escape from sin for a while and then fall back into a life of sin and lose your salvation. If you fall back into a life of sin and never come back to Jesus, you have never seen him or known him. Or Here's a a really powerful way of saying it in Hebrews 3. Encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Four, we have, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now think through the meaning of those verb tenses. Because that's a good accurate translation. We, he does not say, if we hold fast, if we don't hold fast our confession to the end, then we will lose our participation in Christ. He doesn't say that. He says, If we don't hold fast, our assurance to the end, we never did become partakers of Christ. You See that? We have become past if the future turns out this way. If the future doesn't turn out this way, we weren't part of Christ. It's just saying exactly what 1 John 2.19 said. They went out from us because they were never of us. And he says, if we don't stay true to the end, we never were partakers. Because you can't lose your salvation. Therefore, let us be vigilant and fight the fight of faith as assured victors. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Give yourself to trust and obey Jesus and thus reflexively confirm that you are his called and chosen. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called that you you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course, I have kept the faith, in the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the righteous dead will give to me, not only to me, but all who loved his appearing. As you have always obeyed, now much more in my presence than in my absence, or now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you. What I'm illustrating with this text is we fight like victors. We don't fight with desperation. When you come up against the devil or you come up against an opponent who, who hates your faith or you come up against temptation, you don't fight with a kind of, I don't know if I'm saved and I have to win this in order to find out if I'm saved. You come up with the confidence, he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world, and I will not be moved. This text right here, which I didn't um, put in the list, but I put it down this morning as I was going through these, Philippians three, twelve says, um, I'm going to have to look it up to get it right. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Why do you press on to make him your own? Why do you fight through temptation and lean into and and embrace the fullness of your future in Christ and and push aside all obstacles and detractions and, and seek to press on to Christ? Answer, because he has made you his own. This is my picture of it. So my hand is stretched out to Jesus for all that he has for me in the future. And my stretching out my hand is not like, ah, 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 like this. I'm falling, ah, but rather, he's just totally got me right here. Like, oh, this, I'm just kind of dangling here like this. And he's got me right here, and his hand is omnipotent, and I'm, and I'm just reaching out. That's what I mean by fight as a victor. Lift your hand up as one who's being held up. There's no other way to fight as a, as a Christian. End of Perseverance, Um, one half hour on 10 effects, which would be just about right. But I wonder if I should look at questions here. Yeah, I've already answered that one already. That one's not close enough. I'm going to skip these because they don't relate to uh, perseverance. So there's only 327 questions here. I think we would do better to go ahead. So now here's what we're doing. We're stepping back from the five points, and we're asking, what difference does that make? What happens to your life? And I feel like I've got the advantage now of speaking at the end of my pastoral ministry and not just at the beginning where I could say, here's what I think it's going to do for you. (laughs) I'm going to tell you, here's what it did for me and what I think it would do for you. so I got 10 of these and we'll see if we can give them about three minutes each. Makes me stand in awe of God and leads me into the depth of true God-centered worship. First time I saw while teaching Ephesians at Bethel in 1977 the the praise of the glory of God's grace as the goal of all things. I was just blown away. Three times in Ephesians, we are to live for the praise of His glory. And it has led me to see that we cannot enrich God, and therefore His glory is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in Him. So worship is an end in itself. It has made me feel how low and inadequate are my affections. So that the psalms of longing come alive and make worship intense as a heart, as a deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O oh God. The bigger your God gets, and the more glorious He is, and the more pervasive He is in your experience and the world, the more you see the inadequacy of your own affections for him, and worship becomes a longing. That's very intense, and God, I think, is very much honored by such longings. Number two, it protects me from trifling with divine things. It helps me mingle gladness and gravity in a robust and healthy way. One of the curses of our culture, seems to me, is banality, cuteness, cleverness. Worse now than 50 years ago, I think, and it was bad then. Television and social media is the main sustainer of our addiction to superficiality and triviality. God is swept into this hence the trifling with divine things. Earnestness in our day is not excessive or widespread. It might have been once and there are imbalances in certain unhealthy people, granted, but this quote from Robertson Nicole about Charles Spurgeon is still timely. Evangelism of the humorous type may attract multitudes, but it lays the soul in ashes and destroys the very germs of religion. Mr. Spurgeon is often thought by those who do not know his sermons to have been a humorous preacher. As a matter of fact, there was no preacher whose tone was more uniformly earnest, reverent, and solemn. I really would recommend this book right here if you're new to reformed theology and you're wondering is there a simple book there are several in the bookstore. I recommended a whole bunch to Matt and uh, I, I would I would put put you onto those and I didn't mention this one I'm sorry so Matt, if you're in the room, uh, go ahead and add Forgotten Spurgeon to the list someday and the people who go there later will will see it in the weeks to come maybe but The Forgotten Spurgeon is just a kind of biography of Spurgeon drawing out how Reformed theology or the doctrines of grace or Calvinism made a difference in his life, and a lot of people have skipped that part of Spurgeon. That's why I wrote the book. But the point here is when when you believe in the fullness of total depravity, unconditional election, definite atonement, let's use that instead of limited, irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints all held together by an infinitely sovereign God. It gives such a weight to life, a glorious weightiness to life that nothing can be trifled with anymore. I don't think it makes people morose. We've laughed a lot in this seminar, but I hope the main feel of the seminar is, good night, that's serious stuff. That's really heavy, weighty, glorious. So that we spread in our culture not more triviality and trifling and silliness and cutesy banter. Everybody seems to be falling in line with the, the, the talk show hosts and the stand-up comedians because it's just so much fun to have people laughing at you, with you, <laughs> at you. <laughs> laughing at your jokes and your, your clever repartee and your turn of a phrase and your hip, cool reference to the latest movie. <laughs> it's just so foreign from the seriousness of it all. And and if you, if you take that to mean, oh, yeah, we're going to be, you know, morose and sad and gloomy in church, then you're just not listening to me. Or either you don't have the capacity. I mean, you've got silliness and you've got moroseness. Those are your two options. Well, you're just not well if those are your only two options. You need to grow up. There are many options in between silly and morose. And I think believing these things helps you find a a healthy way of being full of gravity and, and weight and full of healthy joy. That enables you to have the biggest, most solid kinds of pleasures in God and laugh your lungs out over your daddy's jokes when he comes home. That's number two. Number three, it makes me marvel at my own salvation. In Ephesians, we've looked a lot at chapter one, chosen before the foundation of the world, predestined unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Those are God's great purposes. We haven't looked at verses 17 to 20, which we should have. And there, Paul is praying, and what he prays is, is that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we would know three things, the greatness of our inheritance, the, the greatness of our calling, and the power, the greatness of the power at work in us who believe our inheritance, our calling, and, and power. And what he wants the heart to do is see those. So you've got theology in chapter 1 saying, here's the great purpose of God, that he be praised. And then Paul knows between chapters, beginning of chapter 1 and, and the later in chapter 1, that the problem is we don't see that as glorious. And therefore we don't feel anything, we don't, we don't praise his glory. And so he prays, oh God, open the eyes of our hearts. And I think seeing these things gives God something to open your eyes to so that when you see it, you are stunned. Every ground of boasting is removed. I'm right here. Every ground of boasting is removed. Brokenhearted joy and gratitude abounds. When God has given us a taste of his own majesty and our own wickedness, then the Christian life becomes a thing very different than the conventional piety. Edwards describes it beautifully. This is just about my favorite paragraph in Jonathan Edwards the desires of the Saints, however earnest are humble desires. their hope is a humble hope their joy even when it is unspeakable and full of glory is a humble broken-hearted joy you got a category for broken-hearted joy? got a category for that? If you haven't, you're not old enough yet. You're too young. Not experienced enough. You haven't been broken in a way that will show you you can rejoice in it. Not just after it. Brokenhearted hearted joy leaves the Christian more poor in spirit, more like a little child, more disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior. If, if my theology of sovereignty is not having that effect on me. It is not the fault of the theology. It's here. Don't blame my theology for my sin. This is the effect that it has when we are responsive to it. Number four, it makes me alert to man-centered substitutes that pose as good news. One of the most effective protections of the church is to have the ballast of sovereignty in the bottom of our boat so that as the winds are blowing we may tack hard like this in the sailboat but it's not going to flop over because it's got the ballast of sovereignty in the bottom of the boat. In the 18th century in New England, the slide from Jonathan Edwards' high view of sovereignty of God led first to Arminianism, then to Universalism, then to Unitarianism, and so also in England in the 19th century after Spurgeon. These doctrines of grace are a bulwark against man-centered teachings in many forms that gradually corrupt the church and make her weak from the inside, all the while looking strong and popular. Contrast 1 Timothy 3.15, the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. I have said, just face on, and some of you have heard me, to pastors of churches with 10, 15, 20,000 people, I have said to them, please, please give yourself more concertedly to the truth. You're a very good communicator. God has entrusted you with an incredible ministry. Don't dumb this down continually. Give yourself to the riches of grace in the last half of your ministry life because your legacy will be more enduring and your effectiveness more pervasive if you give yourself to the whole counsel of God instead of pragmatic simple things week in and week out. I believe that. So if you're going to be a pastor... I'm not encouraging you to be a pragmatic pastor, but one who may grow more slowly because not everybody loves to hear truth, but you will be stronger in the end and your church will be a bulwark and pillar of the truth. Number five, it makes me groan over the indescribable disease of our secular God-belittling culture. I can hardly listen to a news show or read the news or look at a TV show or ad or billboard without feeling the burden, God is missing. And what I feel so sad about, and it's not new, and so I shouldn't talk as though it was a a crisis that's new, because it was the same in the 50s and 60s as it is now, but here it is again. I've talked to a lot of younger people and and middle-aged people who don't feel that at all. They're happy to watch 18 weeks of a TV show, and it doesn't even enter their mind, God is gone, or hated, or belittled, and I should be weeping and troubled. No, just happy. It's fun. Fun, 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 fun. I almost hate that word, because it is so used by everybody to describe preaching, ministry, and. Funerals and weddings and TV and our universal word of joy is fun, which shows how thin things have gotten. When God is the main reality and is treated as a non-reality, I tremble at the wrath that is being stored up. Believing these glorious things about God and His ways helped me to be shocked so many Christians are sedated with the same drug as the world, but these teachings that we've spent eight hours on, they are a great antidote. Did it ever bother you that there's a whole section in the Star Tribune? I mean, newspapers are just about gone, but a whole section in the Star Tribune for the last 50 years and no section on God? There's a whole section on sports and, a whole, and no section on God. I mean, I think some editors are going to give an account of the Judgment Day. Like, excuse me, where was I? Well, we 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 thought uh, we thought uh, um, church would take care of that. God's just missing. God does not like to be missed. I don't even like the term. So you like go to a Christian college class on sociology, come to the end of ten sessions. Say, Is there God in this room? God in this class? Oh, he's the foundation of everything we believe. But we're we're learning from all sources. Now you say, he's the foundation. Tell you what, I got a foundation in my house made out of cement blocks, and I never think about it. And it gets no glory from not being thought about. God does not like to be taken granted so don't call him the foundation of your life and then forget him for 10 weeks and think he's honored so it's a big deal it makes me groan over the indescribable disease of our secular God belittling culture six it makes me confident that the work he planned and began he will finish it gives me personal assurance. And yeah, there it is again, Romans 8. There isn't a more solid structure to build your life on than the doctrines of grace that we've been talking about. There isn't a, a more steel spine, backbone for life. Deep, deep confidence for life. Seven, it makes me see everything in light of God's sovereign purposes, that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to Him be glory forever and ever. All of life relates to God. There's no compartment where He's not all-important and the one who gives meaning to everything First Corinthians ten thirty one. 31, whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I mean, just think how pervasive that statement is. So watch this, okay? This is a good time. I'm thirsty. Every time you do that, it should be to the glory of God. And you do things like that all day long. That's simple. Is he that pervasive in your life? Is he that conscious? Is he just always dominant? Is he there? These doctrines, I'm arguing, if once they take you, they, they're there. You're there. He's there. Always. So I wrote an article for the church years ago called, How to Drink Orange Juice to the Glory of God. So you can find that at the, at the website. Just type in orange juice. I said things like, thank him for the taste buds on your tongue. Thank him for the vitamin C that's going to keep you from getting scurvy. Thank him by enjoying the taste. He made it. It says something about his own delectable nature. Enjoy it for his sake as foretaste of him. Give, excuse me, give thanks for trees that grow oranges. Give thanks for stores that sell oranges. Give thanks for truck drivers who get them to you. An airplane. Give thanks for refrigeration that God made. All these things are going to God. And then... I was doing this with my sons, I wrote this when I had four sons sitting around the table. I said, how do you drink orange juice? If they all like orange juice, and I have just enough for three, glorify God with your orange juice by saying, well, just pour a little less in my glass so that it goes around. That's the way you glorify God. In fact, the context in 1 Corinthians is love. It's not gratitude mainly. It's love this way. Give thanks that <clears throat> with the strength you're getting from it, you're going to serve him today. And dedicate yourself to serve him. Just be aware of God in the drinking of the orange juice and let it all become worship. I'm, uh Tempted to go and look at another text on that, but seeing God's sovereign purpose worked out and hearing Paul say that he accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will makes me see the world this way. All things he accomplishes. Eight. It makes me hopeful that God has the will, the right, and the power to answer prayer that people be saved and changed. So I'm arguing now that believing the doctrines of grace that we just talked about, especially irresistible grace, should give you indomitable confidence to pray for the impossible to happen. The warrant for prayer is that God may break in and change things. He can turn the wheel around. Hallowed be thy name means, when you pray it, Cause people to hallow your name. So you're asking God to act on a non-hallower to make them hallow. Or a weak hallower, like me, to hallow with intensity. Sanctify and honor and reverence God with intensity. Cause hearts to be open to that. We should take the new covenant promises. Now, the question was asked earlier how do you pray for unbelievers if you are a Calvinist? And I'm going to give you now five or six examples. We should take the new covenant promises of God and plead with God to bring them to pass in our children and our neighbors and among the unreached peoples of the world. So here they come. I'm simply taking, and you can do this too. The new covenant promises, which are blood bought, and asking God to make them come true for others who are not yet saved. God, please take out of their flesh the heart of stone and give them a new heart of flesh. Lord, circumcise, right here, Lord, circumcise their heart so that they love you. Father, Put your spirit within them and cause them to walk in your statutes. Lord, grant them repentance and a knowledge of the truth that they may escape from the snare of the devil. Father, open their hearts so that they may believe the gospel. Just take biblical promises and turn them into prayers. Because we have a sovereign God who has a right and a power to answer those prayers. An Armenian cannot pray that way. Because the Armenian always has to put in a little clause that says, but they have free will, God, and you can't intrude upon that. You can't, dis- you can't become the decisive cause of their faith. You always have to let them be the decisive cause of their faith because that's what free will means and you're not going to break that. And I don't pray that way, and the Bible, I don't think, encourages us to pray that way. Number nine, it reminds me, believing these things, reminds me that evangelism is essential for people to come to Christ and be saved, but that its success is not finally dependent on me or limited by the hardness of the unbeliever. So my weakness and their hardness is no obstacle to God successfully saving somebody. So it gives hope to evangelism to believe these things, especially in hard places. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. I must bring them also. Jesus is talking. He brings them. They will heed my voice. His sheep will hear his voice and follow. So our job is to sound like Jesus when we talk. The words of Jesus, the words of the gospel, and he gives them ears so they hear and follow. Do not be afraid, Paul. Go on speaking here at Corinth, there at Corinth, and do not be silent. I have many people in this city. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. There it is. God gives the growth. You plant, you water. Oh, yes. No seed without planting, no seed without watering, or no plant without watering. But God is the one who decisively gives life and growth to the seed. What is impossible with man is possible with God. It is God's work, so throw yourself into it with abandon. I hope you become more fruitful evangelists because of this seminar. More devoted and fruitful prayers because of this seminar. Finally, number 10, it makes me sure that God will triumph believing these things. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Conclusion, that's slide 179, last one. God gets the glory, we get the joy forever. God gets the exaltation, we get the exaltation. (laughs) So, if anybody ever says to you, ah, one letter can hardly make any difference. Oh, oh. God is to be exalted. We are not. We exalt in his exaltation. One letter makes all the difference in the world. That no human being boasts in the presence of God, that's the negative purpose of all these doctrines. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the positive purpose of all these doctrines. Let no one boast in man. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is what life is for, boasting in the Lord and helping others come to see him as worthy of being boasted in. Let me pray. Father in heaven, There it is, eight hours of reflection over your word upon great truths. Now, your spirit is what I lean on entirely as the people leave my presence. And I ask that your spirit would do wonders, would save forever, would preserve and strengthen forever would purify forever Lord continue to work I pray that every person would test all things and hold fast to what is good if I've said anything amiss either false or imbalanced correct it and bring it into biblical proportion I pray glorify your great name spread like wildfire through the cities and all the places from canada and ohio and nebraska and china and all the places where people are from in this room cause there to be a wildfire of spreading your truth i pray in jesus name amen